And so we might say this is an experience of the void. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jim Watkins with a PIX News special report. We are getting word of a U.S. Airways plane crash in the Hudson River. You're listening to The Reactionaries, part two of Digital Void's special three-part series, Media Martyrs. In part one, we look at how mainstream media became a pejorative term through the convergence of the narrative structure of reality television, early YouTube web series, Gamergate and professional wrestling, and the ways victimhood narratives are created by influencers with millions of followers to create the modern-day grift industry. In part two, we dive into the history of citizen journalism and what exactly it means to do your own research. How do reactionaries leverage social media platforms to create victimhood narratives that, in turn, create an army of culture warriors? Ultimately, we answer the question, how did a decade that began with a man taking a picture of a crashed plane through a ferry on the Hudson River end with targeted harassment campaigns? Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void podcast on your favorite podcast platform now. So, Josh, it was probably a story I've told you several times in the past, but I, there was a point in the early 20 teens that was a big shift for me. Like it, it changed how I looked at all media and looked at new media. And I started teaching a, a little class, a little class. And I mean that sincerely. I started teaching a little class called Web Television in 2008. It was uh, at Hofstra and it was a one credit course and it was kind of looked down on. They were just like, what What the hell is web television? I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. So it was kind of a special topics. And we delved deep into like all of these new techniques that people were using. It was not critical in any way. I was still in my master's. I was still learning it. My master's was about YouTube and new media. And by the time I had gotten close to graduation, a strange event occurred, something that changed the way that I looked at new media forever. And it's something that we're going to talk about today. It was a moment in 2009 when an airplane crashed in the Hudson. And at that moment, there's a man named Giannis Krums who took a photo of the miracle in the Hudson plane as it crashed in the Hudson and declared himself a citizen journalist. And while the press was running to the the piers near CBS, where the plane was actually in the Hudson, the photo had already been purchased by the Charlotte Observer and the LA Times and was going to be and destined to be the front page of the newspaper. And he took it on an iPhone 3G, which is fantastically old, through a shitty window. So it was kind of like a fuzzy picture. And he took it vertically. I mean, vertical is fine now, but at the time, that's not what you put on the front page. It cropped, literally to crop the tail of the plane off. Regardless, citizen journalism became like a term that we started using from that point forward. And over the next two years, while I started studying that aspect, the, the more like sociological aspect of how we change terminology, like how we understand what journalism is, how we understand what citizen is, what we understand as media and free speech, culminated in a very large event at the end of 2010 that became in 2011, the Arab Spring. And at that point, I started getting into teaching digital media in depth. And this is kind of the origin story of the, the college major that, that I ended up founding because it was really the concept that I now look back on and say, you know what, it was very naive of me to be so much of the part of the digital utopian mindset, thinking in my naivete that everything was going to be great. This was a sign of the great things to come. And as we know now, (laughs) all of these things were not great, but they could have been great. And it really isn't our fault. It isn't my fault. It's not students' fault. It really is the structural systems that really didn't write any rules, as we talked about previously. It's the fact that people were given the opportunity to define the platforms they used and the profit models followed the users rather than a top-down approach. And in that, and in all of this, over the next decade, from the Arab Spring to the present, we literally watched those who gained control first, the people who were there earliest, learn how to manipulate, how to create, and more importantly, how to change the words and vocabulary around us and change the discourse. They took words from everybody. They manipulated them, weaponized them, and pushed them back into the discourse for one very, very strange reason. It's because they felt they weren't allowed to say it in the mainstream. So they used the tools of the internet to do that. And then when they were pushed back on, they became the victims. So 
We're going to talk about media martyrdom again. All right. We got this is part two of three. There's a lot to talk about in this because we're going to cover a lot of the early the early 20 teens in this. And it really takes me on a journey personally, because even just recently, I'll tell a story in a little bit about what it's like to found a college degree with the concept of really hopeful natures of how so digital media work and social media work. And to know seven to 10 years later, how different that could have been and what critical approaches we could have used. However, I do believe that adapting to the times was really important. So in this, we're going to talk about media martyrs and how influencers and users became who they are and how the conversation shifted from controlling their narrative to becoming the victims of another narrative and how that victimhood status makes them even more the, the protagonist of a terrible story, basically. It's almost appropriate that a literal plane crash into the Hudson was the event that ended up building the ecosystem. Wow. You know, I never even thought of it that way. You're absolutely right. It is interesting to think of it that way, that so much of what we know is framed by one incident from literal blockbuster movies to the entirety of a language structure and the degradation of the discourse surrounding journalism and proper research. That That is fantastic. You, you are absolutely right. When I talk to friends, colleagues, anybody about how this all happened, one of the things that stick out to me is when I ask some of my more conservative friends, I say, why, why is it that this all shifted so powerfully and rightward. And the answer comes in a weird quote, which is, well, conservatives are better at the internet. And I kept thinking to myself over and over again, it almost haunted me. Why? Why are conservatives better at the internet? And I don't want to use the term conservatives here because I, I think it's more the far right is better at the internet or were. They aren't as much anymore, but they have pivoted to the media martyrdom status or victimhood status. And that's where we're going to lead with this. That's where, that's where this is going. But there was a point where it, they were good at it. And I think that was around the time of the right after the Arab Spring, where they realized the power that could come from it. So let me give you a framework of why this happened. The reason why it was called the far right was better at it is because of the, the Overton window. The Overton window leans up against the First Amendment. And the Overton window, broadly defined, is what's okay to say. What is okay within the window of the air? Like to kind of like think about it in terms of like the, the free market or um, the sunlight will make sure that it clears up all things. Like bringing out things so it's like understood by, by a larger group. In other words, you can't say certain words. And the reason you can't say certain words isn't because you don't have free speech, but it's because of public discourse disallows it in terms of acceptability. Free speech allows you to say whatever you want. Uh, there was a court case in the early 1900s that changed the way the consequences come. So there's two consequences for the First Amendment. One is you cannot have a threat to national security. That's something that the Supreme Court ruled upon. That's been metaphored in terms of like you can't yell fire in a theater. As we saw from Trump's banning on Twitter, it's equivalent of that. You can't threaten national security with your speech. If you do so, it's not covered by the First Amendment. The other restriction of the First Amendment is uh, within libel and slander rules. Libel is and slander are basically the same ones in print and ones out loud, but it means you can't outright lie about something without consequences. And that's the important thing here is that there are consequences for speech. You have the right to say anything, but you don't have the right to say it without consequences. And I think in that is like, well, where can we say certain things? And that makes me always question. And this is where that meta text comes from, which is why do you want to say these things? <laughs> and I think that's a problem that I personally have, which is like, I don't, I can't personally see the need to say certain bad things, but there are people who believe that free speech should be unlimited, that there should be no restrictions whatsoever. And you should be able to say words, regardless of how offensive they are, they, they should just have the ability to say them regardless of the consequences. And that is what the internet is. <laughs> so the internet, is this like space. Okay. It's this never ending infinite space of discourse. It's everywhere and everything and communication tool that has never been made in all of history. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. So think about how much stuff, how much stuff is said, how much stuff is archived online. Now, in the earliest days, and we could go all the way back to 4chan and the idea of little A anonymous and big A anonymous. And I want to reference Dale Barron's book here. It came from something awful. Dale Barron wrote sort of a a history of our present of like how 
message boards became the way they are and how they how the toxic trolls basically elected Donald Trump. And we're referring to 4chan and Reddit when we say message boards here, not a BBS. Correct. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I'm not talking about like the early IRCs or AOL chats. I'm talking about like the later iterations, something around like 2007, eight time when Chris Poole migrated the otaku channels over to the US and made the chans. Those chans are still problematic. As you as you know, 4chan is, is, is bad. Well, parts of it. Uh, the random boards and the poll boards. 8chan is bad, some of it. And 8kun is basically where Q lives, hasn't posted in so long, but that's where basically where it is. These chans are basically free speech zones. They were little a anonymous. And little a anonymous means that every single user gets to post whatever they want to say, and there's no tracking it back to them. The boards themselves are self-deleting without an archive. So if a board doesn't get attention or a post doesn't get attention, it slowly makes its way to the 10th page. And if somebody continues posting, which they often do, by the 10th page, it just gets expunged. It goes into the ether, never to be seen again. In this is empowering. I remember saying this in the early days of founding this major. Think about what it feels like as a person, someone who is not in a great job, someone who has consequences at work, someone who has ideas and expression and wants to say certain things that may or may not be acceptable. If they were to say it at work, they'd get fired. So there's consequences, real life, the loss of income, loss of place, loss of job, history. But when you give somebody anonymity, you give them power, you give them the ability to be clear. And I think that goes for anybody. I think when we feel like we can't be held accountable for something, we feel empowered to do different things. The boards are two-dimensional. The boards were spaces that empowered us to be excited because when you post something that's somewhat illicit, it feels amazing, but at the same time feels somewhat wrong. And that wrongness is kind of like, well, I'm getting away with it. So it feels good. Did you ever post on them? Did you ever use 4chan or any of those? I've extensively lurked on both 4chan and 8kun, but no, I have never participated in a conversation. Have you? I posted on 4chan a few times uh, in grad school. And I, I, this is again where my limitations were. I, I felt weird. I did too. The entirely anonymous environment made every conversation feel fake. Let, right. Maybe that's the right way I'm thinking about it. Maybe you're helping me think it through is that because of the anonymity, it was almost like a forced personality of like, we're all pretending to be more powerful because we're anonymous. Right. Even on a specific hobby centered message board hosted by the bulletin, there were certain features that allowed a person to play with their identity even while they remained anonymous. For instance, you could select an avatar, create a signature, either a graphic, a quote, or maybe a promotion of some sort, join groups within the community. There, that's a different type of identity and environment, one where people can earn a reputation through their participation in a community. And some folks even decide to reveal their true identity. However, on the chance, the assumption with the lowercase anons is that the other person is not approaching a conversation in good faith. The understanding is that the person on the other side of the screen is trolling. Right, right. Yeah. So I think what you said is really important is identity. When we are anonymous, we also have to shed something really important, our identity. If, for all, those of you who haven't watched it yet and really have seven and a half hours of free time, you should really watch Adam Curtis's Can't Get You Out of My Head, um, which goes into the history of rugged individualism. <laughs> so Adam Curtis does this long history of how individualism is basically brought to us by our modern post-World War II systems. And those systems empower us to be fearful because... Rugged individualism means the lack of collectivity because collectivity means connectivity, but individualism means free market and free market means fear. And in, in terms of that, it's really a reactionary stance because you're always reacting. You're never taking the proactive stance. So that history of individualism gives us identity. Who are we? Why are we? And why does identity matter? As an aside here, when I was in grad school, my minor was anthropology and I did several days of field work. Uh, I worked on an archaeological dig and the archaeological dig was really, really helpful to be on because I learned a lot about why do we dig in general. And a lot of it has to do with identity. And I learned that identity or individual identity really was informative until the Industrial Revolution. We were pre-Industrial Revolution. You were part of a collective. You were part of a, a system that operated with multiple people. Your identity wasn't really prioritized. Uh, there were people with identity, politicians, actors, vaudevillian people, people that would occasionally get notoriety, criminals, so to, so to speak. 
But as we developed identity, parts of identity have to be forged within us. What makes us us? What makes us unique from somebody else? And so within those are like very interesting elements of who we are. When we start learning how to wear those pieces of our identity, you have to also then become protective of that identity. You don't want to be taking them. And so you brought up something really important here, which is the trolling aspect. Like what, what's the difference between little a anonymous and big A anonymous? So for those who don't know, big A anonymous is the hacktivist contingent of anonymous. It's the people that ended up working collectively, but just not for things that we would expect. Their big uh, original attacks were protecting not only their identities, but protecting the internet's free speech. So they were really like arbiters or the, the odd police of the internet. And when the Scientology, Tom Cruise had a video removed from the internet, they believe that was a, a wronging, like you shouldn't remove anything from the internet. And so they started physically protesting with Guy Fox masks uh, in public. And so they were doing collective movements and direct action as a result of standing up for the internet, which is interesting because it's like it's part of their identity was forging a place in a non-physical space. So Dale Barron writes about this in the book, It Came From Something Awful. And he writes this, quote, it turned out surprisingly large amount of 4chan's culture aligned with the sensibilities of slash poll. That's politically incorrect. That's the board. After all, a majority of the boards were filled with racist and homophobic slurs. This is kind of like when a little baby learns a, a bad word. It's it creates a reaction from the parents. By saying the bad word, the parents are saying, don't use that. Don't say that. That's not for you. That's an adult word. But because of that, it brings them attention. So that attention creates this feedback loop. The more I say the thing I shouldn't, the more attention I get. These slurs and this racism that were embedded in these boards were then forged into the identity. It was kind of like they can't, this is going to be a bit of a reach, but this is like a, a very interesting aspect of identity and, and anonymity in general. Part of using bad words and curse words is to remain unprintable because as we talked about the Overton window, what is acceptable in public spaces. If you print bad words it, or you write them or you say them, you can't end up on TV. This is why a good way for paparazzi to not be able to sell their images is if actors give the finger or say the F word too many times, it's unsellable media. So it actually protects identity. That same thing is kind of like a weird cudgel that ended up being beaten into the internet itself, which is we can remain anonymous if we just be more awful. <laughs> and as you said, that results in trolling because what they realize is it gets attention. When people see that as wrong, they realize, oh, now they see us. Now they can be, now they want to pay attention to us. So it created a split. Baron continues. Moreover, the final split between anonymous, little a, and anonymous, big A, meant that the trolling contingent remained in orbit around 4chan, while many of it possessed a moral compass had either left for activist sites or had grown out of 4chan. Also, far-right fascism was not at all different from the extreme libertarianism that had defined much of, much of 4chan's political beliefs from the start. So I want to talk a little bit about this. This is a really important moment that Barron goes in depth with in his book, but I think it really plays importantly well into what happens in the late 20-teens and the media martyrs that are literally still active today. The libertarian belief doesn't come from 4chan. It comes from the mid-90s. Uh, it comes from the onset of how we how we use the internet. You're referring to John Perry Barlow's The Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. Thank you. John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace in 1996. Governments of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace, the new home of mind. On behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. We have no elected government, nor are we likely to have one, so I address you with no greater authority than that with which liberty itself always speaks. I declare the global social space we are building to be naturally independent of the tyrannies you seek to impose on us. And in that, he basically tells the governments to get their hands off the internet. It's not theirs. It's a free space. That's a libertarian point of view. It's an anti-regulation point of view. It basically says that the free market will adjust. Uh, it will out the sunlight, like the John Stuart Mill uh, sunlight will bleach the bad and we will come out with only the really the good stuff in the end. I don't think Barlow took into account 
<laughs> um, what happens inside of some of these spaces and how much our addiction to really awful things uh, becomes too powerful for that type of libertarian mindset. So that libertarian mindset is baked in. Now, meanwhile, Tumblr had been forging identities as well. And so the identities being forged in Tumblr were basically, I don't want to even call them reactionary to 4chance. They were just forging in a different way. They were forging in a way that was moving towards a social justice movements. The movements that we have today were basically in their their versioning stages in the early 20 teens. Tumblr did such good work and still continues to do work. I, I, I even think recently Amanda Brennan in an interview with Ryan Broderick in uh, Garbage Day actually was talking about this, that Tumblr itself is still a place for people to test out their identity. It's a place where people can go and see safely if they belong. Tumblr is fair more, far fairly more welcome than the Chan boards, where Chan is designed as a reactionary space. And Tumblr was really testing out what it was like to be a queer person, uh, somebody who is a person who has strange uh, interests, somebody who has niche fetishes, somebody who has interests in something that may or may not be acceptable in public spaces. But there was everything was accepted. It doesn't matter. And in real space, meaning us in current time and in real real space there shouldn't be any judgment of people like that as long as you're not hurting somebody there shouldn't be a generalized judgment on that however because of the way reactionaries have acted is that that's not exactly true but tumblr was that space that kind of wanted to premise that that wanted to say there is a better world there is a place where we could communicate tumblr did something really interesting tumblr started introducing new words new identities new concepts new ways of belonging and what do you think happened to the chans? The chans went back to all that they knew. Trolling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I like the way you put that. All that they knew. Wow. Okay. My favorite phrase. Wow. You, yeah. The chans did not really appreciate the new terminologies that were becoming more acceptable in the internet discourses. So it was very similar to like when Scientologists removed the video. In the opposite way, the new words and vocabulary that were being introduced into the internet and used, they were mad at it because all that they knew were the words that already existed that were already awful. And they did not like that new words were out there being invented. And those words were actually being adopted into public and physical spaces. There was a threat. They felt threatened by people who were able to actually get away with opening the Overton window. The Overton window doesn't just open right. It opens left as well. It opens in every direction. As the Overton window opens further towards progressive stances and new identities become acceptable, the far right believed believed that they should have an equivalent version of that. <laughs> so they believe that there, if, if new terminologies and new acceptable uh, pronouns were able to be uh, used in public spaces, they should have their own versions of that. That's incorrect. I'm sorry. That's just not, that's not right. There's, there is a way of having the Overton window open all directions without having to be reactionary to push back against things that are basically telling people they belong. It's okay to just say, you know, it's okay I'll leave you alone. If this is the words you want to use for you, then that's all it is. Which indeed is the true libertarian stance. A hundred percent. That is, that's the irony here, it's, which is that the true libertarian stance should have been the full acceptance of Tumblr culture and saying, yeah, this is okay. You're coming up with new things. Good for you. It's not our problem. You do your own thing. And then something big happened. <laughs> something that was, as we said, I think I said it in the last bit of this, but I'll say it again. Gamergate is everything. Part two. Gamergate. <laughs> so Gamergate is an is an event, that, an ongoing event, I would say, that has long strands into the aughts that eventually culminated during Gamergate's incident in the early 2010s. And it comes from a very strange space online, which I referred to last time when we talked about the beta male's charms. And we talked about white marginalization, which I always say is like a catechesis where because that doesn't exist. There is no real white male marginalization. But they felt that it didn't work out for them in the mainstream. So they felt like the internet was their space to try to go and expand upon that. Do you know, I'm going to ask you this, do you know what the game is? Have you ever heard that term? No, I don't. And you're not referring to the game that Zoe was critiqued on that inspired Gamergate, right? No, no, I don't mean Depression Quest. No, I mean, um, I mean the game, the quote, the game. Um, that is, this is, so this is important. And I think this is important to bring up here. Um, the game is a uh, pickup artistry. It's a technique. 
Um, it was widely known in the early 2010s, a very misogynist technique uh, made by several influencers at the time. And I, I don't feel the need to bring up their names. They came up with a tactic, uh, a very misogynist tactic that debased women and turned them into objects and created a game that was usable. So men could use this game and pick up women. It was a technique of becoming uh, an alpha male, I guess, so to speak, if that, if that word is, it's not really a good word to use, but it was their way of basically telling people that if you play this game, you could become a pickup artist and you could dominate women. Uh, the pushback of Tumblr scared them. And so they became much more toxic. Uh, pickup artistry uh, became very obviously looked down upon because it literally is about objectifying women. And it birthed the men's rights activist movement, the MRA. And the men's rights activist movement was a pushback against feminism. And they became the terms anti-feminist. Anti-feminism was the concept that feminism had already succeeded in the 1990s, that we lived in the 2010s in a post-feminist world, that uh, equality had already been achieved. And now not only has it been achieved, but men themselves weren't getting the jobs any longer because women were being prioritized over men. As we'll refer to the Tumblr quote many, many times, sometimes equality looks like oppression to those who've never experienced it. That's how they saw it. So when equality is working, equality is not equity. Uh, equality sometimes means that people that people are given opportunities that they would not have been given in previous eras. So at this time, journalism, literally journalism, just journalism, was expanding as well. So Giannis Krims had already changed the term citizen journalist. Basically, anybody with a phone and a blog could be a journalist. Um, now, journalism is also opening to people who didn't traditionally have access to writing mainstream content. So women, people of color, black and brown people, queer people, anybody who just would not have this typical access point to have a point of view in a mainstream discourse, now had the ability to write, publish, be paid attention to, have a point of view, have some sort of stake or take in common culture. A game had been developed that was an, kind of an anti-game. It was called Depression Quest, and it was an ironic game uh, made by a woman. And in the discourse that happened here, an article was written about it. As And I'm not going to go into the full Gamergate story, but it created a reactionary stance because women's take on games obviously were going to be differently critical than men's takes on games. And anybody who's played Grand Theft Auto can tell you that there's two ways of looking at that game. And so when you hear a take coming from a woman, you're going to see that differently. You could either say, oh, that's interesting. That's a different take that makes a lot of sense that women shouldn't be treated as digital objects that can be beaten inside of a game. But to the men, they felt like this was it again. This is this is happening again, that the world had now created had marginalized them, that, that men were no longer able to say what they want to say. And again, this created the, the Gamergate event. And that Gamergate event, I'm going to read something here. All right. So this bit comes from a Harvard political review piece called The Alt-Right is Counterculture, Memes, Video Games, and Violence. Gamergate was a classic culture war that planted the seeds for an alt-right reaction to feminist critiques of video games, especially as the previous vanguard of gamers saw their culture becoming mainstream and their quote-unquote gamer identity dissolved. This notion that pure or perfect gamer culture and identity must be defended from invading female, non-white, and queer people can be easily extended or compared to a broader point about defending, quote, white Western civilization, unquote, from, quote, invading immigrants. In this way, there is a parallelism between the fear and disillusion of the gamer identity as it becomes less male and the fear of disillusion of Western national identities as they become less white. It's a lot, right? Where do you want to begin? <laughs> so we're going to spend the next bit, the part three in that bit about white Western civilization. Okay. So I don't want to get into um, uh, Western chauvinism at this point, um, just because I think I want to focus a little bit more on how we end up at the conclusion of this, which is just really how Trump becomes part of this, like how that's leveraged to become that. I think Western chauvinism is now like that's post Trump because Trump had given the, the platform to that. Now we're in the point of fascist aesthetics, more of a Western chauvinist approach. I, I, for this though, I want to focus on what the other parts are, which is the, the threat, the identity threat. And I think that's where I think a lot of the media martyrdom comes from in this, which is the identity threat that occurred within all of this. And that to me is fascinating because all of the words in that Harvard political review piece are important. But I think most important is gamer identity. 
that was that when I read that, I was like, that's it. Because what is what is a gamer identity? Like what what, what exactly causes people to say, I I am a gamer, I I have an identity as a gamer? Like I don't want to push this out as saying that's a bad thing. I don't want to say gamers are bad. What I what I want to say is that gamers are potentially more online and more exposed to insular communities that don't have an outside. And I think what happens then is they create their own language that is protected. And we're, we've gone into the rare Pepe's already with um, Giorgio and Arthur. So I don't have to go into too much about what the rarity of the language is because gamers do create a rarity of language. They want to keep a specific counterculture to the public mainstream. And so they create rarity of linguistics. But I think within that is like the, the appeal of inside jokes and what they would call irony. <laughs> they would want to call it that way. And, and their term of irony is not the same as our version of irony. It's their irony is basically saying, just joking. It's just a joke. It, it's, it's couched in an unreality that only they can use. And by doing that, it can't be used by other people. It can only be used by the insiders or the gamers. So they were threatened. They were physically, mentally threatened by the idea that A, the United States is becoming more pluralistic and B, access to mainstream media is being privileged to those who have the talent to do so regardless of gender or race. It's, it's uh, it, the talent is now being more acceptable. So it's really important. So we are not, this is what's amazing about this. We are not yet in the grift. We're not yet in the place where Rogan O'Hanley exists. And we're not in the place where uh, places can now, haven't yet monetized how to make this reactionary stance valuable. They're still in the point of just reacting to the shock that when they, when Gamergate started, the public didn't take the gamer's side, right? Is that strange? <laughs> it's strange on so many levels, but the exclusivity is really what stands out to me. The underlying assumption, and Lisa Nakamura and Dr. Charlton McElwain speak about this in their work, is that the white heteronormative male is the default internet user. The internet is not just what you see. It's the erasure of indigenous, oh, global right. south, eastern, and many other cultures. It's a way for capital to extend itself. And the systems are not neutral, no matter how they present themselves. That's another big part of this, which is the realization. What was that quote that I read recently? And I, I'm, I'm not even going to be able to attribute it. So I'll have to put in the show notes. But it was the 1619 Project was threatening to people because they felt that if you teach young people about the racism in America, they might come to see racist, racism as part of America. And then wasn't that doesn't that tell you more about America than you need to know? <laughs> and so that that alone. So in other words, to, to metaphor that is that the threat itself becomes as dangerous as the reality of what happens after the threat. And so, in other words, threats result in things. Threats become things eventually. There is an endpoint to the story, and it is horrific. And a lot of what we're doing right now is. Yeah, is basically retrospective work. I mean, we're doing, we're looking back on this. When I was teaching this at the time and Gamergate had happened, it was a hot button issue. There were students in the classes that when I brought Gamergate up, were visibly upset, were visibly aware that I had to walk on careful ground when I spoke about this. You know, it was very clear to me that this was something that was had to be handled in that more of a gray area than it was to be handled as this is wrong. And when you're untenured as a faculty member, and this is honestly placing blame on myself because I'm I'm a fair now uh, I've always been, but I'm a very fair believer that you should be radical in the classroom. You should be making sure that you teach the, the what you believe is to be that that truth, that important rights and wrongs of, of where is the discourse and where isn't. And I, I'll hold that to myself. I'll hold myself a little guilty in the fact that I could have pushed a little harder and I wanted to be more welcoming in my classes. And I think that's in a larger critique of academia in general, which is that uh, non-tenured faculty don't have a defense mechanism against a lot of that. So this retrospective work um, is important today because we can look back on it and know the difference. But there were a lot of Cassandras that went unknown. There were a lot of people that raised the flag, um, including myself, but I would put myself not at the high point of this. I think the majority of people that really recognized the dangers here were a lot of women and people of color that were affected directly by these threats, that were trolled to the point of having to remove their social media, that were physically threatened in real life spaces. 
And these researchers are really the heroes of the 2010s that were able to say it out loud. And many of them have stuck through it. And um, in, a, in a recent piece in the Times, Charlie Warzel actually brought many of them together to actually speak about the time and explain how it was to them personally. Uh, men were blissfully privileged to sidestep most of these problems until Trump became president. And so I think that was like a lot of our responsibility that we could have enacted. But, you know, it's I think that's something that we're we're uh, part of our work we're doing here, too, is kind of like not making amends for it, but making sure that we keep the conversation going, reminding ourselves that these things happen and could happen again. As you allude to with the pushback to the 1619 project. 100 percent. I do believe uh, I'm saying it out loud now. I do believe that we're we're on the cusp pre we're the, we're in between two things right now. We are after the victimhood and media martyrs. This is why we're doing this piece now and talking about media martyrdom. And we are before the Western chauvinist movement that is on the horizon. I am watching it happen real time. We're watching it happening to people. And as the insurrection is being normalized, for many reasons we'll discuss in the next one, the, the strongest voices of the Western chauvinist movement have now concretized what they believe is going to be the next stage of what is neo-fascism, to say it at the very least. It's, a, it's American fascism that is going to be a reactionary stance that will gain power unless we recognize it and disable it immediately, as fast as possible. Because now that we know what happens from Gamergate to Trump, we should be aware of what could happen from 2022, 2024, and so on, if we don't stop it. And we do also know what happens as a result. So to lean back into that story from the Harvard Political Review, the end of that story from Gamergate to the present ends with the Christchurch massacre in 2019. It was a shooter that not only live streamed the massacre, but purposely wrote a manifesto filled with so many memes that meant such nihilistic behavior that we could only trace it to the horrors that come directly from Gamergate. I would say almost specifically that Gamergate's language became so metatextual that this is where that grift takes place. Part three, the victim influencers. <laughs> and so we're going to, this is the last bit of this, this one, because I think we can get through this, but I think this is a really important thing that didn't just happen in the United States. I think victimhood grifters are the, are become the media martyrs, the people who we now look at as like the heroes because the media, they weren't allowed to be on the media. Milo Yiannopoulos was probably one of the earliest. He was somebody who grifted directly off of Gamergate. Uh, a gay white male who was very flamboyant and very angry and racist and misogynistic and used Gamergate as his flag to basically walk around and say that these young men were right, that these are, they had the right point of view, that this is something that they truly believed in. What we didn't know until later was that Milo Yiannopoulos was funded. He had money. He was funded by the Mercers who funded Bannon. They had funded the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And so a lot of this, uh, the media martyrdom, a lot of these uh, victimhood grifters come directly from actual direct money. Uh, they are given the ability to leverage their points of view and stay online, even without the ability to be advertised because private money, private monies can do it. This is not a new story. Private monies have always sh shifted our discourse. But what it allows is people to start playing the meta text game because they can't go away because we can't take their advertisers away, because we can't shunt them out of the system, because they have private money, they start communicating through memes. They start communicating through a subtext. They start communicating through the reactionary stances of, quote, irony. And I, I'm putting that in quotes because it's not the irony we think of. It's irony is in the... It's, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. You can't hold it against you because I'm joking. Because one of the leeways in the First Amendment is satire. You are able to write anything or say anything if it's satirical. If it is making fun of or critically commenting on something, it's satirical. And once it's satirical or just joking, it's well within the freedom of speech and you can't actually penalize somebody for it. You could try, you can make their life tough, but you can't actually make them take it back if it's a joke. One of the things that happened in this language was the meta text symbols of memes. And there's one in particular that I think plays the biggest role it's the OK hand symbol. The OK symbol was the one of our biggest metatextual memes of the past decade. In one way, it can mean white power because it looks like a W and a P. Or it can mean OK. You can play the OK game where you put your hand on your leg and make people look at it. I'm going to read it to you from 
the Harvard Political Review. Consider the example of the OK symbol emoji. Originally started as a prank on 4chan to trick the internet unsavvy media into associating the harmless emoji with white nationalism, the ironic prank transformed into a quote unquote hilarious bait and switch of the liberal media into unironic signifier for white nationalism. When the Christchurch shooter flashed the sign in public, it is clear that the prank blurred the line between irony and sincerity. This focus on keeping the discourse ironic allows the racist discussion to continue unchecked as anyone who challenges or calls out the memes as dog whistles are easily labeled as uninformed quote unquote normies who are not in on the joke. While those who are genuinely believed in the tenets of the alt-right can seriously debate Holocaust denial, ethnic cleansing, and racialized hierarchy under the guise of just joking. Now imagine, imagine being a professor or being an educator or being a researcher or or a writer, a journalist. How do you, how do you go up against that? What do you do? Um, you don't, (laughs) not well, not effectively. (laughs) How do you do it within a system that accelerates and profits from the very type of irony that helps to spread that narrative? Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's at the same time it's there. So we're, we're looking at is like three, we're looking at a very interesting frame like a really, really interesting frame of media in general. There's many media at this point. There is the internet media, which is huge. There's left and right mainstream media, MSNBC and Fox News. America at this point is a very unique country in this place because the majority of our media comes from private corporations, not from public broadcasting. And so where we had reality television that we explained previously that leveraged the common person up to TV contestant. Reality television does not go away, as we talked about with Tom Syverson. It's no, it's still there, but it's more passive entertainment now and more of a, a piece of media. It's, it's very much something that we should study, like as we, as we studied I Love Lucy, as reality television today. It's a very good construct of television in general. But when we don't need reality television, we turn toward these people that are media martyrs, that are victims, that are screaming and yelling because they're not allowed to be on the mainstream systems when they're mainstream systems are getting them far more views at any day. When they say, I'm being censored, or the right is being censored on social media. And when you look at the top 10 posts of any day, it looks like Ben Shapiro is always the first or most shared post on Facebook. There's an ability to constantly maintain that irony, the irony of I'm being silenced to their most amount of viewers that easily outweigh every single type of media uh, audience that exists. The way I put it is it happened from an it, they change from the offensive, trolling, terrible discourse to the defensive. And that defensive is still offensive because it's now reactionary, but it's, a, it's now an offensive-defensive stance. They are offensive in the, in the very offensive way, but they're also not playing the offense anymore. They're waiting. They wait for reactionary because they know the reaction is going to be more valuable than an offensive stance. Because if you're reacting to things, you're always going to have the last say. You're always going to be there. And that's where that irony comes from. So there's a big shift, a huge shift that occurs that moves it into the martyrdom space. I don't want to go too deep into the Trump election or what happens. But there, I think a big shift also occurs when Richard Spencer gets punched in the face <laughs> um, during on the day of Trump's inauguration. And that actually doesn't do what I think many people thought it did. I don't think it ended the meme. I think what it did is that was the shift. The sucker punch changed the system. It changed it into, oh, see, we're not even allowed when we win. And when that happens, that becomes the underdog. When the narrative becomes the underdog, they believe that you'll root for the underdog, regardless of what it is. And Trump, as we know, played that role. He played the outsider. He played the person that was never the winner, was always looked down upon, was never privileged inside of newspapers, but excelled to the level of presidency, the highest seat in the land. So how could you be the loser when you're the winner? (laughs) Well, if you try hard enough, it could work. (laughs) It's like a sports team that always wants to be the underdog because it's a narrative that's easier for fans to root for rather than, say, being a team like the New York Yankees. Sure, Yankees fans (laughs) love the Yankees, but everybody else wants the Yankees to lose. So how does a party create the illusion that they are the underdog? Well, you constantly become the victim. That leads us to the perpetual creation of boogeymen. Mm-hmm. So to end this, to conclude, I also had this fortunate experience in the 20 teens to go to Italy to teach media archaeology projects over the course of five years. And Italy, we're not getting into it in this show, but Italy is a very interesting space because of the way their government works, the parliamentarian government and their government's border with and play with neo-fascism because fascism never went away. 
uh, for Italy. It was born there and it continues to thrive in, in many weird pockets. But what I did watch over the time we were there is the way in which fascism became physical and physical and not the way that you would imagine, not the way that you say, oh, it's going to be violent, but in the way of, of making the tent bigger. And I actually watched over the course of five years, uh, jobs increasing. Uh, Italy has a lot of police officers. It has a lot of different police officers, uh, the Carabinieri, the Polizze, and then they also have private private police officers and they have security. And one of the big weird things about watching neo-fascism is that when you when you don't have jobs for the people, you make them security, you make them muscle, um, and you put that out. In the United States, it's a little different because you make them digital warriors. <laughs> you make them cultural warriors. You basically create a security force to fight back against culture. One of my favorite journalists, Ben Collins, uh, he works directly with Brandy Jadrosny at NBC News, and they cover the dystopia beat. And I love the term, the dystopia beat, because it, I mean, how else do you find your define your job when you're doing internet research reporting? You know, like that's that's just fantastic. He he and Brandy are really phenomenal reporters. They have uncovered some of the biggest stories, I think, of the last decade that have changed the way we see things from QAnon to the grifting culture. He had the opportunity to speak with Luke O'Neill on um, his Hell World piece. And he actually, I want to just end with Ben Collins' thread here because I, I think it's really important to focus on a thread that I, I come to all the time to talk about kind of a summation of what we got through in this and where we're going with it next. When we talk about what happens when all of this occurs, what, how, how, do you, how do you turn martyrdom into power? How do you turn it into people who stand outside in their yard holding guns to protesters and the next thing they know, they're speaking at CPAC? How does that occur? How do you do that? What is, what is that thing? When Ben Collins and Brandy Zdrozny cover internet beat, they cover harassment. They cover, they cover campaigns. Remember, a lot of this comes from the, the dark monies. Ben Collins writes, this website is a nightmare this week from all the target harassment campaigns coordinated off-site and unchecked by these platforms. It has made me profoundly sad and it is extremely hard to deal with. I wrote about it once and I probably won't again. And I'm, I'm not even going to date this thread. <laughs> this could be any week of any time. Like this, is, this could literally be at any point. He writes... And I'm reading this, by the way, because I'm going to translate this. And this is something I used to do in class because the thread is very inside baseball. It's uh, if you don't know how internet culture works and you're listening to this and our goal is to like kind of do the translation of that. I think this thread is like really helpful to help us understand it because his next bit goes, we know it's targeted bullshit from 4chan, Mercer babies, PewDiePie teens and other people who have come who have had the time to post racial slurs at you all in your mentions. But the capacity for a brain to process that all in real time is just not possible in the torrential downpour of hate. So you see what he says here? He basically brings up that 4chan, Mercer babies, uh, PewDiePie, these are people that are dark funded. What he's also saying is that it isn't just, it's an army. It's a security force. It's a culture of, of people that have now taken the idea that they need to defend an invisible victimhood. On days like this, I wonder... The teens migrating from YouTube conspiracy videos and boomers migrating from freedompatriot.gun, both due to the wonderful world of algorithmic gaming, will they gain a silent militant near majority without anyone knowing? Have they already? Absolutely nobody is taking this serious enough, especially the people running the platforms that have created this sort of guerrilla basement platoon of empathy-free children who think school shootings are false flags. Social media execs will never take their role in radicalization seriously for some for a simple reason. It's a defense mechanism. They did not intentionally create something that is used as a weapon of division and violence. They'll accept any alternate explanation that works as a bomb. Others are blissfully naive. They don't understand that their kid hanging out on kiwi farms all day is stalking a trans person he hates because they don't know what kiwi farms is. If you do want to know what that is, please follow Garbage Day uh, to read about that. Regular people have jobs and lives and can't comprehend the hate their kids regularly stumble into. Kids are regularly forced to accept or reject subtle pathways to hate from YouTube, almost always before they understand their pathways to hate. These are not conscious decisions, and they are making them regularly without oversight from parents or companies. At base, I bet they at least hate the press. That's sort of a given, right? The idea that we're all sitting in offices and trying to invent lies all day. Even if they reject a Reddit forum with swastikas all over it, they'll still trust the same sources that subreddit trusts. A part of their job now is to cover the extremists who get their ideas from social media and take it out on people in real life. The synagogue shooter, the pipe bomb, pipe bomb guy, so many school shooters, I can't count. Yes, yet I'm browbeaten by executives. Social media isn't real life. Really? Every time it's a variation on a theme. Video games to YouTube to 4chan to target harassment campaigns. Yet it's never the company's fault. There needs to be actual accountability. People who run social media companies would have to be completely asleep to not see this by now, to not hear these stories. They're living among widespread violence and discord. Their algorithms are abetting and they just let it autoplay. 
And it is really one of those pieces that when you when you accumulate years and years and years of watching this devolve and watching these things happen, you start to question what can be done. Like what, what is actually happening here? And the reason why we're doing this special, the reason why we're talking about media martyrs is because not only is nothing being done, but it turned out in the most strange way possible that this is the most profitable model for social media. That it turns out that the reactionary stance, the people who react to reactions, bring in the most views. So how do you turn that off? How do you make a 12-year profit model that is billions? I'm not talking about the light billions. I'm talking about the multi-billions. How do you one day and say, oh, you know what? It actually is better if we don't make money and we make the world better. <laughs> so it's Ben Collins, is, that's one of the deepest bits that I think I've read on any Twitter thread. And I've used it multiple times in classes. And I do remember very specifically doing this in a class. I think it was the same day that I gave my neo-fascist lecture in my um, uh, civic engagement class, or, or uh, I was actually teaching a media archaeology class before it. And I remember students were visibly upset. And I, I did apologize to them at the end for laying that heavy of a deal on them. But honestly, it's got to be heavy. Because what we're going to go into next time <laughs> is going to go into three case studies. We're going to go into Brett Kavanaugh's trial. We're going to go into the Covington Catholic school kids. And we're going to Kano into the Kenosha Kyle Rittenhouse story. Those three case studies, by explaining those, will tell us what does it mean to leverage victimhood status into the ability to be an army of culture warriors. We are not going to go into the current discourse of what the, the right is trying to turn woke and cancel culture into things because the terminology they're using, they don't even have a meaning for. And so it doesn't even have an ability for us to have that discussion because they're only using it ironically. But what I do say, as we conclude this, is that be wary of what they do with it eventually. Eventually, they will find a definition and they will use it in a different way. But for now, it's not worth just debating because it doesn't have a meaning. All it is designed to do is react. So there's a lot. Uh, we began with a man taking a picture through a ferry of a plane that went down in the Hudson. And we end the decade with targeted harassment campaigns and people who literally go around saying, oh, we're the one victimized, not you while they have 10,000 people spam somebody's inbox. Thank you for joining us for the second part of our special three-part Media Martyr series. For full show notes of this episode, you can visit digitalvoid.media and click the episodes page. We'll be back next week with the final part of Media Martyrs. Media Martyrs.